All right, good morning, Gateway. We can start making our way to our seats, please. We'll get started this morning. It's great to see everybody this last Sunday of April. May is upon us. It's a beautiful day. I'd like to welcome all of you who are watching us online as well. We're so glad you're able to be with us. For those visiting with us today, maybe for your first time or second or third, we want to extend a special greeting to you. We're so glad you're here to worship with us this morning. I hope you felt welcomed and greeted as you came in for us to enjoy a time as family. Just got two announcements, and then we'll get started this morning as we prepare our hearts to worship the Lord. Ladies, the home, um, Homemakers Workshop is upon us over the next couple of weeks, getting ready for Saturday, May 13th. You will be gathering again over in the gym building at 9 o'clock in the morning. Uh, Alana Taylor and my wife Nikki are hosting again. And this month's topic is a recipe swap and food chat. And let me clarify, this isn't just for ladies. Some guys are like, man, I love to cook. <laughs> I'm a good chef. Actually, our former pastor, Alan Cross, was a foodie. He could cook all the time for us. But So this isn't strictly for women, obviously, but... Obviously, that's where it's leaning, but it's for a recipe swap and food chat. You're going to share tips on seasonal eating, meal planning, things of that nature. Um, they're encouraging you to bring a dish of what your maybe one of your favorite meal, um, you know, whether it's a side dish or main dish, to be able to share it together so you'll get a little bit of a wonderful time of eating. Um, they ask of you to, uh, to bring five of your favorite recipes that you can put on uh, three by five cards um, to be able to hand out for the swap. So just a good time of fellowship and preparation over a meal and uh, for you all to share some good times together. All right, we're going to ask Dale Hadaway to please come up. He's going to give us an update on the Bible reading marathon taking place this week. Thank you, CJ. So the dates for the Bible reading marathon say May 5th and 6th, which is next Friday and Saturday. Those are the dates for the in-person reading downtown at His Vessel Ministries at the train station. It actually starts on Thursday, May the 4th, which is the National Day of Prayer. Um, it kicks off in conjunction with the Montgomery Prayer Breakfast, which starts, I think, 7 o'clock. There's still tickets available to that prayer breakfast if anyone would like to a go, would like to attend. You need to get those tickets through hisvessel.org. It's a separate event associated with the Bible Reading Marathon. Bible Reading Marathon on Thursday is where you can sign up to read the Old Testament anywhere that you choose, and we still have slots available for that. Friday, thank the Lord, is full. We have slots available on Saturday for you to sign up to come read the New Testament, again, downtown at the train station. Uh, email went out this week to the members. You can go to uh, Gateway's webpage on the events page, I believe, and you, get, you have a link there to go sign up for it. Make sure when you go, go to the sign-up page that you look at the top and make sure you're on the right day. Because if you look on Friday, you may see nothing available and not sign up. There's a drop-down where you can select Thursday, Friday, or Saturday and be able to sign up for any slots that are open. If there's a name there, it's taken. If there's not a name there, you can sign up for it. So please uh, come be a part of this and be witnesses to God's Word going forth in our community. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Thank you, Dale. Appreciate it, brother. Dale has led that for the past couple of years, done a great job. It's just a wonderful opportunity to be a part of the body of Christ citywide and to have the word of God declared over our city and our river region. Also, that Thursday, the National Day of Prayer, I think it's 11 at the state capitals, 11 o'clock, 11 a.m. For anybody that wants to take a lunch break, they're having a time of prayer and worship right there on the Capitol steps, which we will be joining the body of Christ nationwide, all over the United States at all the Capitol steps. Uh, there will be a body of believers worshiping the Lord and praying for our nation at 11 o'clock on Thursday. All right, saints, let's stand as we prepare our hearts to worship the Lord through song. 
I'm going to read over us a few verses here from Psalm chapter 103. As David declared his heart before the Lord, let us do so as well this morning. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your diseases, who heals all, sorry, excuse me, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfy your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Let's worship him this morning.
God, we thank you so much for those words that we can declare. You're sovereign, and you're constant, and you're never changing. You're our strong tower, our rock, our faithful God. Well, that's why we come each week, Lord, to declare and to celebrate, God, your attributes, your nature. You're so trustworthy. You will never leave us or forsake us. You are always near. God, what assurance we have. It's just an amazing truth for us to take in each and every day, Lord, as we get up each day to face a new day of trials and struggles and sometimes pain and suffering. Just knowing, God, that you are faithful and strong, that we can rely on you, that we can lean into you, that we can rest in you, that your spirit resides within us to empower us, to guide us and direct us each day, knowing that you're near. Thank you, God, that you are that type of God that we can trust you faithfully. You are so good and so just. And that allows us opportunities this week to come before you, Lord, knowing that you're good and trustworthy for us to lay these petitions before you as we intercede, as we stand in the gap for individuals and groups and nations, knowing that we can entrust these prayers to you, Lord. And God, we thank you this morning for those who are part of our Gateway family. Lord, we thank you for our senior adults that you have blessed us with here. Lord, we thank you for their ministry. We thank you for their lives. We thank you for their wisdom, their experiences with you, Lord, that we can glean from, be encouraged from. God, we pray you continue to provide them opportunities here within this faith family, within their own families at home, the spheres of influence as they, they have in our community, that they would be salt and light and your ambassadors, Lord. Knowing that they are not finished, you have still have so much in store and you have called them to do for the sake of your kingdom. We pray for continued health and strength for each of them. We thank you that you have brought them into our faith family, Lord, to be a part of us. And we're just continually excited, Lord, that we can continue to glean from them and know that there's opportunities for them to serve us, to serve you, and to be used by you, Lord, with the giftings and abilities that you've given them. We ask you to bless them, Father. We thank you for them. Lord, we thank you for those in our community we can lift up, Lord. We thank you for Pastor John Halbrooks and his ministry with the Mistech Church over there in Northwest Montgomery. Lord, we thank you for his heart. He's been serving faithfully at this church for many years. We thank you for the Mistec community, Lord, those that you have brought to us from Oaxaca and other parts of Mexico to this community for to have the gospel, um, to be able to be presented and for them to be discipled and for them to be able to share with their families and their unique community, God, and their heart language of Metlatonic. We pray, God, you continue to move among them, that they would know you intimately, continue to give Pastor John wisdom and discernment and vision and provide for everything they need, Lord, to reach that community with the gospel. Lord, we thank you that we get to lift up our brothers and sisters globally. We thank you, Lord, so much for Pastor Mark and Haiti and the relationship that we've had with him for many years. We pray you continue to provide for he and his family and those other pastors and leaders that they're using to continue to go up into the mountains and the hills as they plant churches, as they reach those in a very dark place with the gospel. We pray you continue to provide for them the resources they need to take food and literature and resources as they're continuing to build churches and reach those in the very tough places, God. Continue to keep him healthy and strong. Bless his family. Continue to protect him, Lord. And we just thank you for the work that he has done for many years there. And we're seeing fruit, God, as we see him post things time and time again of many coming to faith and churches being established. And we ask you to continue, Lord, to bless them. Lord, thank you again for your goodness and your grace to bless us with so many things. 
Lord, I pray that we continue to be good stewards of your resources. We thank you for the offering that's been given today and online. And God, continue to give the leadership of this church and us wisdom on how to steward your money and your resources that you've blessed us with here at Gateway for the sake of your kingdom, for the advancement of your kingdom, and to be able to use it faithfully here on this campus and abroad in this city to reach people with the gospel. And Lord, we thank you so much for our pastor. We thank you for Grady, for his heart of leadership, his shepherding heart his heart to teach, and he loves your word and studies your words so faithfully. We pray you continue, Lord, to bless him today. Give him energy and strength. Give him discernment. Speak through him today, Lord, your word. And just prepare our hearts and our ears and minds, Lord, to receive today what you have for us as he's being used as your vessel of truth. Again, God, we praise you. We thank you as we declare, God, you are worthy of all honor and praise and glory for who you are. May we rest in that today and rejoice in that today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, kids, first through fourth, you can head out that door, follow Hannah at the end of the door, and I'll meet you down there. We get to enjoy kids' worship today together. While the kids are moving to kids' worship, just want to remind the parents when the service is over, you'll pick them up in the blue hallway in the gym building and hope they have a great time at Pastor CJ this morning. Find 1 Peter chapter 4 in your copy of God's Word. We're continuing our year-long journey through 1 Peter, and we're in the home stretch of your Bibles like mine. You see the end coming up, and we should finish up at the beginning of July in our current pace right now. But 1 Peter chapter 4. Now, as you're finding, I want to ask you a question. If you've been around Gateway, this question will probably sound familiar. My question to start us off this morning is, what is your perspective on trials and suffering in your life? What is your perspective on trials and suffering in your life. When you think about the trials you've already walked through, when you think about the trials and challenges you're walking through right now in life, when you think about the prospect, the assurance, if you will, that more trials are coming in this life, what is your perspective on trials? Now, if you're thinking that question sounds really familiar, you are right, it is. Trials and suffering is a major theme of Peter's letter. And Peter's going to return to it one last time here before he closes out his letter. Now, Before we jump in, I don't want you to miss the reality check of the frequency of what Peter has done here. He has talked about suffering and trials in every single chapter of this book so far. We saw it back in chapter 1. We saw it in chapter 2. We saw a long section of it in chapter 3. And here we have a section on suffering as well in chapter 4. Four of these five chapters all deal with suffering and trials. The topic is that important. And as Peter comes to it one last time in his letter, he's going to try to shape our perspective, to shape our thinking about how we view trials, sufferings, difficulties, and hardships in our life. And so as we look at 1 Peter chapter 4, we're going to start with verses 12 and 13 this morning. I want you to be looking for, as we read, what is the perspective that we need on trials and sufferings? We have two commands here in, this, in these verses that are the perspective that God is calling us to have when we consider and think about the trials we've already walked through, the trials we're walking through now and the trials are still to come in our lives. So we're looking for what we are called to do in our thinking about trials in 1 Peter chapter 4. I ask you to stand please in honor of the reading of the Word of God. I'm reading out the English Standard Version. I we'll also have the words on the screen for you. 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 12 and 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Would you pray with me? 
Father, we thank you for your unchanging word. We thank you that in your grace you've given it to us to reveal yourself to us, to show us very clearly who you are and what it means to, to walk with you. So I pray you'll take your word today and use it to help us, Lord, to encourage us where we need encouragement, to convict us where we need conviction, and ultimately, Lord, to change our perspective on the hardships of life so that our lives will glorify you as we walk through the ups and downs of this life. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, before we jump into these verses, I want to remind us kind of the big picture of what Peter has just said, because that frames where Peter goes right here. So look back up at chapter 4, verse 7. And we saw this a few weeks ago, but I don't want you to miss the connection between what he said in verse 7 and where we're going today. Look at verse 7. He says, the end of all things is at hand. He's reminding us we are living in the last days, this period between the first and second comings of Christ, where we're waiting for the imminent return of Christ. And if we have that eternal perspective, he says, the end of all things at hand, therefore, what changes when we, by God's grace, focus our minds on eternity instead of the here and now, what changes, he says, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. We're to be sober-minded. We're to think correctly. We will have right thinking about all areas of life. And that right thinking that comes from keeping eternity in view shapes how we view suffering. So what does sober-mindedness look like when it comes to the trials and sufferings of this life? And that's exactly where Peter's going here in verses 12 and 13. So he has two commands for us here, and they're kind of like two sides to one coin. He tells us what we're to put off, what we're not to think when we consider trials in our life. And he tells us what to put on, what we're to replace it with and our thinking. So let's start with the put off here, what we're not to think about, how we're not to view sufferings in this life. And look at verse 12 to see what he says. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to you. So the first command here is that we are not to be surprised when we face trials, sufferings, hardships in life. Now let me remind us, friends, this is an imperative. This is a command. This is not a suggestion of how to get through life happier. This is not a positive thinking. This is God's clear revealed will for us, his people. That God's will for us is to not be surprised when we face trials. Now let me kind of flip that and how we phrase it to help us catch the weight of that. What God is saying is we are to expect to have trials in this life. We are, ex- we are to expect to face sufferings as we walk life's journey. Now, friends, this is not new to Peter. Jesus himself said it. John chapter 16, verse 33. Look at Jesus' words. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace in the world. You might perhaps, if you're not a nice person, have tribulation. Right? No. You, what's the next word there? You will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus' promise Again, like I joke about sometimes, this is not the one you find on coffee mugs very often, right? We were going to have tribulations in this life. We're going to have hardships as we walk this journey of life. Paul told us the same thing in Romans chapter 5, verse 3. It's going to be similar. He said, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. It is so normal. He doesn't say we rejoice in those rare occasions that we might have sufferings if you're one of the few unlucky ones in the Christian community. Now, this is the norm for him. We as Christians are to rejoice in the midst of our sufferings. That's the normal Christian life. James said it as well. Familiar text to us here. James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers. Notice that's not an if. When you meet trials of various kinds. And friends, that was the expectation of the early church. That was the experience of the early church. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. Notice what Paul says to the people there in Thessalonica. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith and all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are 
enduring. The normal experience for that early church was a life of persecutions and and afflictions, yet they were steadfast in their faith. Now, I shared it previously in one of the other messages about suffering early in this, but I want to remind you of something that a guy named Tom Schreiner said, because I just keep thinking about this as we go through this letter. Schreiner said, suffering stalks the believer until this present evil age comes to an end. Suffering stalks the believer until this present evil age comes to an end. Picture that someone stalking someone. It follows you in this life as we await the second coming of Christ. Suffering will stalk us. It will follow us throughout this life. Well, what are these trials and sufferings that stalk us throughout our life here? Well, as we've seen before, there's really two things in view here. One type of suffering we experience is just the brokenness that comes from living in this cursed and sin-filled world. Just the brokenness of life. That's what we just sang about earlier. Do you feel the world is broken? And no one in the room went, nope, it's not. Everything's okay. We all sense the weight of it. We deal with sin. We deal with sickness. We deal with broken relationships. We feel the pain of others. The world has brokenness, and we feel the suffering and trials that come from that. And that's part of what Peter is talking about. But there's a second aspect of suffering, and that's the suffering we experience because we know Jesus, because we're a follower of him. That's what Jesus told us in John chapter 15, verses 18 to 20. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. And again, friends, I've said before, I'm so concerned how so much of the Christians just want to get as close to the world as we can so they'll love us. Jesus is very clear. The world does not love us because we follow him. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore, the world might hate you if you're not a nice person. No, therefore, the world will hate you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Again, not a Bible verse we frame and hang over our sofas, right? He's promised us that in this life, we will experience hardships because we are a follower of Christ. Now, Peter has both of those in view here when he's talking about trials. The trials that come from walking through this life in a broken world and the trials that come because of our faith in Christ. And so he tells us to expect those things, to not be surprised by those things. And so to put off the thinking that we're not going to have a hard life. And he so wants to make sure we get it, he repeats it again in verse 12. Go back to our verse for the morning. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Now notice this, as though something strange were happening to you. This word strange means unusual, unexpected. He's saying, don't act like I didn't see this coming. Don't act like this is unexpected or abnormal or unusual. This is the normal experience for Christians in the world. It is the normal experience to have trials and suffering and hardships as we walk through this life. Paul Tripp is a biblical counselor. I really enjoy reading. We've got some of his stuff in the resource center. And he said this about this truth. He says, somehow, some way, I have to accept by grace that suffering will be part of my life between my coming to Christ and my going home to be with him. Now, he doesn't say this is easy to do. It's not. He says, somehow, some way, I have to accept by grace that this is not a natural perspective. The suffering is going to be part of my life and your life between our coming to faith in Christ until our going home, <coughs> excuse me, to be with him. But the reality is that's not often our perspective, is it? We often act so surprised when life gets hard because we have the wrong thinking. We lack that eternal view that we saw back in verse 7. We think thoughts like, well, I work hard. I try to be honest. I try to live for Jesus. I try to do what's right. Now, why doesn't God, and we start filling in the blank of what we expect God to do for us because we feel like we have 
done our part. Friends, that is works-based righteousness, and we act like God owes us something, and that is so very dangerous. God's will for us and God's promise for us, as you heard me say before, is not to get us from birth to death in the safest, happiest, easiest, most comfortable, wealthiest way possible. But so often we believe that lie and act that way. And so when the trials and hardships come, if we think that way, we start asking the questions like, well, where's God in this? Why is God doing this to me? Does God not love me anymore? And this text guards us from going there because not only does it tell us to not be surprised, it tells us that God loves us even in our sufferings. He's framing all this by telling us that God loves us even in our sufferings. Go back to verse 12 and notice how this section of suffering begins. He says at the very beginning, beloved. Now notice this. This is the Greek word agapatoi. It's a word that comes from the same Greek word agape, that word for God's covenantal love for us, God's pure love for his people, God's committed love for his own people. It's God's agape love. He begins this reminder about suffering by saying, you, the beloved people of God, the people that God has put his affection on, the people who are being held and loved by God, he says, start off with that truth. Now, friends, that's massively significant here. Don't skip the word beloved. It's not just a transition word here. That means when you are walking through trials and sufferings and hardships, that is not because God is displeased with you. When you're going through hardships and suffering, that is not God forsaking you. That is not your life spinning out of control and God's in heaven going, oops, I didn't see that coming. Now, what do I do to fix this mess of his or her life? We are loved by God. That's why we could sing just a minute ago, not for a moment, God, will you ever forsake me? Because he loves us. If you are in Christ, you are loved by God and held by God. And those hardships then are not God forsaking you. Trials and sufferings come to the beloved people of God. Don't miss that. Trials, suffering, hardships are part of the life of the beloved people of God. They're not antithetical to God's love. They're part of God's love for us. Suffering is not outside of God's will. It is part of God's will for his people. That's why when we sang that song, not for a moment will you forsake me, we also sang, after all, you are good. After all, you are sovereign, meaning he's in control. He's ruling and reigning. He's not in heaven letting just events go however they want to go. He's in control of all parts of our lives, including our trials and sufferings. I know it sounds crazy and radical because it's so different than what we often hear, friends, but trials and sufferings are part of God's love for us. They're part of God's love for us. Friends, that's very different than the picture you've heard me say before of the cultural view of God. He's just some grandfather in heaven who winks at sins and wants just to bless you with nice things, give you some cookies, give you a new car, and then you get to do whatever you want to do. That's not the picture of God in Scripture. His love for us is so good and so pure and his sovereignty that trials and suffering form part of his love for us. Trials and sufferings come to the beloved people of God because God loves us, because God is pursuing our good, because God is committed to his own glory. Well, that sounds incredibly radical, and it is, But Peter's going to raise the bar and make it even more radical for us. And not only say, you're loved by God, expect sufferings. He's going to tell us a second command here. It's the other side of that coin. And this other part of that, he says, not only expect sufferings and trials, rejoice in the midst of those sufferings and trials. Rejoice in the midst of your trials. Look at verse 13 here. Notice the first word of it, but. He's contrasting it. He's contrasting it with saying, people who are surprised about suffering, don't be surprised. Here's what you're to put on. Instead, but rejoice. Rejoice here. This is a present tense verb in the Greek. That means it's not a one-time thing you do. It means to rejoice 
and keep on rejoicing and keep on rejoicing and keep on rejoicing and keep on rejoicing day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment. We are to, by God's grace, rejoice in whatever life it has before us there. We're to keep on rejoicing. So what does it mean to rejoice? That's the question we asked when we first started Peter back in July. And I don't remember what I said two weeks ago, much less in July. You probably don't either. So I want to remind you what we said last July of what it means to rejoice. To rejoice means to feel and to express great joy. So the command to rejoice is a command to feel great joy and to express great joy. Now, what is joy? It's a hard word to define, but the definition I've used before is joy is the experience deep within us of great delight. Joy is an experience. It's not circumstantial. It's an experience deep within us of great delight. That's very different than surface-level happiness. It's something deep inside our soul. And so to rejoice is to express, to feel that great delight in our soul. Now, friends, this is a very radical command because we're being told as you walk through trials and sufferings and hardships in life, we're being commanded to feel something inside our soul. We are being commanded to express something that's deep within our soul, and that is great delight. Let's talk about a command that's absolutely impossible in our own strength, because this is the exact opposite of what our flesh feels. When hardships come, when trials come, the last thing that most of us run to is, I'm going to delight today. I'm going to feel delight, and I'm going to express delight. But this is exactly what God is calling us to do, something we cannot do on our own, something that requires His grace to change us. He's saying here that trials for us become an opportunity for joy. Trials become an opportunity for us to find great delight deep inside our soul. Unless we think this is just Peter off on a limb saying something crazy on his own, this is the very thing Jesus himself told us. Matthew chapter 5. Let's go back to Matthew's gospel. He said, this is in the Beatitudes. Blessed are you. Favored by God are you. This is God's blessing in your life. When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. Friends, this is not outside God's will. The blessings of God come in the midst of our sufferings. But notice what Jesus says next in verse 12 in Matthew 5. Rejoice and be glad. The exact phrase that Peter's going to pick up right here. In the midst of your sufferings, in the midst of the persecutions, in the midst of the afflictions you walk through, rejoice and keep on rejoicing. Deep in your soul, day by day, moment by moment, even when life is hard, feel joy, feel great delight, and express that no matter what is happening around you. That sounds strange, and it is, unless you know God. This is very weird sounding, unless you have a relationship with your Creator. So how does knowing God help us find joy in the trials? How in the world can a person find deep delight in their soul when life on the outside appears to be spinning out of control? Well, our text shows us three ways here that I believe we find joy in the midst of the difficulties and trials of life. The first one's one that sound, will be familiar to you if you've been around Gateway because we've seen it many times before. But the first way we find joy in trials is we know that God uses trials to grow us. God uses the trials or difficulties to grow us. Now, glance back at chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, because Peter has already told us this once before. He said, In this you rejoice, there's that same word again, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Rejoice in the trials. Why? Verse 7. So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, 
may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. He's turning our minds to eternity, to Christ's return, and he's connecting joy in trials. Why? Because verse 7, it grows our faith. It strengthens our faith. Now notice the imagery, excuse me, here of testing and refining in fire. Keep that imagery in mind. And now go back to our verse today, to verse 12, and notice how Peter's connecting the same images here. Beloved, do not be surprised at the, here it is, fiery trial when it comes to you to test you. He's kind of bookending the whole book here. He begins the book by talking about trials that test you, and he's closing out the book here talking about trials that test you. He's using trials to grow us. And we see that in these two phrases here. Notice this phrase, to test you. Now, in the Greek language which Peter writes, the word test means to prove. So this is not the idea of you get a scantron in college, you fill in the bubbles and you see if you pass or not. That's not the imagery here of testing. Testing means proving. But it's interesting, the word that Peter chooses for testing here means proving something that you already know to be true. This is a testing where the outcome is already known what it's going to be. Why in the world would he say that? Because God already knows we have faith. Remember, he's writing to believers. God gave us faith. Our faith is not because of anything we've done. It's God's grace gift to us. So God has given us faith. And so if God has given us faith, nothing can destroy that God-given faith. So God is testing us not for God to figure out if we're genuine or not, but so that we see it is a genuine faith. It is proving to us something that God already knows is there, showing us the genuineness of our faith in Christ. It is growing us. In other words, in God's sovereignty, and his deep, deep love for us, he uses trials to anchor us in our faith. He uses trials to show us that we do have genuine faith in him and to grow that faith. Now, we see this in the other phrase Peter uses here in verse 12 as well. Look back at the beginning. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Fiery trial. Notice this word fiery. That's not talking about the intensity of the trial. That's not describing the type of trial you are going through. A fiery trial is an Old Testament image that the Jewish background listeners would understand. It means being purified. It means being refined. The Old Testament is full of images of God's refining fire to purify his people. You see it in the Psalms. Psalm 6610 is one of the examples. In Psalm 6610, the psalmist says, for you, O God, have, here it is, you've tested us, you've tried us as silver is tried. Well, how is silver tried? It is melted. It's put in the furnace, and the purity of it is seen for what it is when it's heated up. You see it in the prophets, Zechariah 13, 9. And I'll put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. And what happens when God's people are tested? They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. The purification, the refining fire anchors the people that they are, in fact, God's people. The prophet Malachi brings up something similar in Malachi chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. He, God, will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. So we see this idea of a fiery trial or fiery refining here. This is imagery for us that Peter is pulling from from the Old Testament. So go back to verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. The fiery trial, friends, is not the fires of a world out of control. It's not the fires of God's judgment. It's the fires of God's loving, refining process in our life where he lovingly purifies us, his people, to be who he's called us to be. One of the authors I read this week said it so well. 
He says, sufferings are not a sign of God's absence, but of his purifying presence. Sufferings are not a sign of God's absence from your life or my life. Sufferings are a sign of his purifying presence. His presence to make us more like Christ. Which is what Paul brings out in Romans 5. We looked at one of these verses earlier, but go back to Romans 5, verses 3 to 5. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. We focused on that part earlier. Why? Because suffering produces. God uses suffering in that refining of the fiery trials to produce, to create within us endurance. Verse 4, he goes on. And endurance produces by God what character? And character produces hope. In verse 5, and hope does not put to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. You notice the connection in Paul here as well. God's love has been poured out to us. We're suffering, but we're rejoicing. And why are we rejoicing? Because we're experiencing God's love in the suffering as he grows us and refines us and makes us more like Christ. So friends, so how does knowing God help us see trials as an opportunity for joy? Because we know God's not absent from us in those trials. It's in the midst of those trials. And friends, in my life, I feel like my greatest growth and godliness have come in the hard times not the easy times, that God loves to take those hard times around and use them to remind us, I am with you, I am not forsaking you, I am holding you, and I'm going to develop your character, develop your faith, and grow you. So friends, when your faith grows, can you rejoice? When you find growth in godliness, can you rejoice? When you realize your character is becoming more like Christ, can you rejoice? If so, then you can rejoice in trials Because it's a tool that God uses in his grace to make us more like Christ. So we can rejoice in trials because we know God, knowing that God uses those trials for our good. But Peter has two more things to tell us about how we can find joy in the trials. Number two, we find joy in the trials because they remind us that we're united to Christ. They remind us that we are united to Christ. Notice how he begins verse 13 of our text. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, the sufferings of Christ, the sufferings that Christ himself endured. He tells us we are to share in his sufferings. We're to rejoice in that because we're sharing Christ's sufferings. Now, this may sound weird to us, but he's simply saying you are united to Christ. Therefore, Christ suffered. You also, as his follower, will suffer too. Now, this is not new to Peter. He told us this back in in chapter 2, verse 21. (coughs) Excuse me. He says, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. Notice this, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. You see this in other parts of the New Testament, Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, this incredible prayer, that I may know him, know Christ, and the power of his resurrections, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Friends, I venture to say for most of us, myself included, this is not the way we probably default to praying most days, that I'm rejoicing and that I'm sharing in the sufferings of Christ. For when hardships come in our flesh, our natural response is not to be like, I get to be like Christ today as I walk through the hardships of life. But that's one of the very reasons we have trials is to turn our minds so when the hardships and the trials and the sufferings come, we remember the sufferings of Christ and are reminded that we are united with him. These are reminders to us in the hardships of life that we are united to Christ. I think one of the best pictures of that is the early church in Acts Chapter 5. Talk about a perspective that seems so foreign to much of many of us. Acts chapter 5, verse 40. And when they, the disciples, had been called in, when they, the ruling authorities, had called in the apostles, they beat them and they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And they let them go. Now, what would most of us do at that point? Verse 41, we're told what the early church did. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing 
So notice this. They're suffering unjust hardships, direct persecution for faith, and they leave rejoicing. Why? That they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Friends, what a radically different perspective on trials and sufferings that the early church, when they were persecuted wrongly for their faith, they counted it, they were worthy to suffer the name. They knew they were united to Christ, and as they suffered, they knew they suffered because they belonged to Christ, and they found joy and could rejoice in their unity with Christ as they faced sufferings for his name. So friends, when we remember that we belong to Christ, does it give us joy? Absolutely. That means then our trials are opportunities for joy because they remind us that we are united with him. So for those who know Christ, we can find joy in the midst of the hardships and trials because number one, God grows our faith. And number two, they're reminders that we are united with Christ. But number three, they remind us that a greater joy is still to come. They remind us that a much greater joy is still to come. Look back at chapter 4, verse 7. We started with this this morning, but this frames everything here for us. The end of all things is at hand. We are living in the last days. Christ may return at any time. And so their point, Peter's pointing us that day when Christ returns, when we see him face to face in all of his glory, when we think about the rewards that await us in heaven, he's pointing our minds to future rewards, to eternal joy deeper than anything we've ever experienced, which is exactly what Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount, or sorry, back in the Beatitudes 2, Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. We started this one earlier. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. But notice where he goes next in verse 12. Rejoice and be glad. So how do you find joy in that? For your reward is great in heaven. It is hard to find joy in trials. Jesus knows that. Peter knows that. So what do they keep doing? Pointing us to future rewards. Pointing us to future joy. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. God keeps turning our minds to eternity and to the joy we have with him. That's what Peter's doing here. Look at verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. They may also, notice this, rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. He's pointing us back to the second coming of Christ when we see Jesus in all of his glory and his beauty and his splendor and his majesty. And he's saying, think about that day. The joy you find now, even the hardships, pales in comparison to the joy that you will have when you see your Savior face to face, ruling and reigning and restoring all off creation. Ultimate joy is still to come in God's presence forever. The author of Hebrews says the same thing. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 32 and 34. He says, recall the former days when after you were enlightened you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Verse 33, he carries on. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. So these are serious sufferings. And sometimes being partners with those so treated. Verse 34, for you had compassion on those in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Now stop there. He's saying you endured incredible sufferings, but in the midst of your sufferings, you did what CJ preached about last week. You served other people. Your sufferings didn't lead you to withdraw and hide. Your sufferings pushed you out to go to prison, which was a hard place to show mercy and compassion. You accepted people plundering your property. How could you joyfully serve people when your life appears to be falling apart? Why? Because you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. All this is temporary. Our bodies, our homes, everything here is fading away. But the day is coming we see Christ face to face. The day is coming we get resurrection by. The day is coming that there's no more trials, no more suffering. And we enjoy the perfection and the presence of God for all eternity without any of the hardships of this life. We have a better possession and an abiding one. And we're called in Scripture to focus our minds on that and long for that greater joy that still is to come. One of the authors I read this week said it so well. He said, keep on rejoicing now 
so that you may rejoice then. Our joy now in suffering is the means of attaining a joy then a thousandfold and glory. Our joy now in sufferings. Again, we're not rejoicing in the suffering itself, but we're rejoicing in what God's doing in the sufferings, growing our faith and uniting us to Christ and pointing us to eternity. Our joy in sufferings now is the means of attaining our joy then a thousandfold in glory. So, friends, when we think about heaven, we think about the new heavens and the earth, we think about getting resurrection bodies one day, we think about a, a t- a eternity free of sin and temptation, free of relational brokenness, free of any type of struggles. When we see God in all his beauty and we experience eternal life with him forever, do we find joy in that? Absolutely. That means we can rejoice in trials because these trials are pointing us to the fact that this is not forever. This is not our home. Something more awaits. And so we can rejoice in the trials because God is reminding us a thousandfold greater joy is still to come. So let's try to bring all that back together. Look at verses 12 and 13 together with all that in view. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. And so something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. You may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Here's the main truth I want you to take away from this text today, and it's simply this, friends. Living with the end in view helps us see our suffering and trials as opportunities for joy as the beloved people of God. Living with the end in view, keeping eternal perspective in view, helps us see our sufferings and our trials as opportunities for joy as the beloved people of God. Friends, if you know Jesus in a personal way, not just you pray to prayer and you don't think you're going to go to hell anymore, but you know God, you experience a relationship with your creator, his saving grace that you secured you, his transforming grace that is changing you. He said, if that's you, then God is reminding you the hardships you faced this week, the hardships and trials that still are to come are not his displeasure, are not him forsaking you or abandoning you, but rather part of his love for you. And he's using those as tools of his grace to free you from living for the here and now, to free you to live with eternity of you. He's using them to help you become more like Christ. So the trials and sufferings of life are opportunities, opportunities for growing in godliness. And we can rejoice every time we grow in godliness. The trials and sufferings of life are opportunities to remember we are united to Christ. And we can rejoice every time we remember we belong to Christ. And the sufferings and trials of life point us to future joy a thousandfold beyond what we have in this life, and we can rejoice in that. Sufferings and trials in this life are opportunities for joy, friends. Why? Because we are God's beloved people. So three questions for you as you think about it. Number one, do you know you're God's beloved? Can you say with confidence, I am beloved by God, that God has put his covenantal love and affection on me, not because of anything in me. I'm a wretched sinner, but God has changed me. He's saved me. I am beloved by God. Friends, if that is not you, these promises of future joy and union with Christ are not the promises for you to claim. You need to run to Christ to experience his forgiveness, to ask God to save you. That's where it needs to start. These incredible promises of joy and suffering is something unique to those who know God in a real, intimate, personal way. Do you know you're God's beloved? If not, you need to start there. If you know you're God's beloved, the second question, are you living with eternity in view? Friends, it is so easy for me, for all of us, to lose sight of eternity and to live for the here and now and to get focused on our trials and sufferings and hardships now. Are you living with eternity in view? This perspective on joy and suffering requires an eternal perspective. 
And so if we're struggling to live with eternity view, we need to run to the scriptures and ask God to open our eyes to think about eternity and to change us and to ask the Holy Spirit to turn our focus from the here and now to eternity. And last question, friends. When trials come, do you see them as a surprise? In more sense, do you see them as a curse? Or do you see them as an opportunity? An opportunity to find joy in Christ, knowing that God is using them to prepare you for your future with him. Now, friends, in light of all that, we're going to end this morning with celebrating communion together. And friends, this is only for those who know they're the beloved of God. And so that's the first place for us to start before we come to the table this morning to close out today. If you know you are the beloved of God, that you've trusted in Christ and in Christ alone for your salvation, you know that God has forgiven you of your sins, and it's evident because you have assurance of salvation, but it's evident because he's changing your life and breaking sin patterns in your life, you are welcome. It doesn't matter if you're a member of Gateway or not. If you know that you belong to God and your sins are forgiven and that you're united with Christ, you are welcome to come celebrate with us this morning. Now, if that is not you, I want to ask you just to remain in your seat. No one's going to embarrass you. No one's going to come seek you out. But Scripture warns us about receiving these in an unworthy manner. And so we just want to warn you and caution you, if you do not know you belong to God, that your sins are forgiven and you're a follower of Christ, just remain where you're seated during this time. But if you know Christ, we want to invite you to come and to reflect on all that we've talked about this morning and to use the time before you come receive the elements, to use the time as you're looking at the elements as you receive them, to ask the Lord to search your heart, to grow your faith, and to confess the ways that you've not lived with eternity views, to confess ways you've not viewed sufferings and hardships this way, and to ask Him for His grace to change you and to grow you as you reflect on the incredible cost of our salvation to prepare to receive it, I want to read for us from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 26 this morning. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we have instructions about the Lord's Supper. We're told, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. When he given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Friends, we take this to remind ourselves of the cost of our salvation. We see the bread reminded that his body was broken on the cross for our sins. We see the blood, the juice reminded his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. Because scripture is so clear, without the shedding of blood... There's no forgiveness of sins. This reminds us that Jesus went to the cross in my place, if you're in Christ, in your place, to take the wrath that you and I should have experienced in hell for all eternity. He took it in a moment on the cross. So he says it is finished. The wrath has been satisfied. What we sang about earlier in that very first song, our debt has been paid, and it is all forgiven because of what Christ has done. And so we do this in remembrance of him, reminding ourselves of the incredible cost of our salvation, to worship him and to reflect on that. I was struck thinking about it this week. Verse 26 there, 1 Corinthians. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. But you notice the future focus again until he comes. So we take this and not only has us looking back to the cost of our salvation, it has us looking ahead to the second coming of Christ. And we get to celebrate for all eternity with him. So as you receive the elements this morning, use this time to turn your focus to eternity. To think back at Thank Christ for the salvation you have and remember the cost of it and let that stir your heart to awe and wonder and thankfulness, but also to look ahead to his return and to ask him for grace to turn your heart to keep an eternal focus to live with eternity in view. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. And after I pray, 
Our ushers are going to come to the front, and they will help serve them, but they'll also help direct you. You'll make two, two aisles or two rows coming down the middle to receive the elements and then to go back to your seat. If they'll just follow their, their directions, they'll tell you when to come, and you'll come. You'll tear off a piece of bread, get your juice, and then return to your seat. There's no rush to take it right away. Use this time to reflect, to pray, to worship, and to thank the Lord for his grace. So would you join me in prayer? Father, we are thankful for your grace today. We're thankful for your grace that has forgiven us of our sin, your grace that has sustains us, your grace that has done for us what we can never do for ourselves. So, Lord, we ask for much grace today, Lord, to as we celebrate the ordinances here, Lord, to remember your sacrifice, that your body was broken, the blood was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And I pray you would turn our hearts to thankfulness and to wonder for all that you have done. And so, Lord, we pray that you would just give us much grace today to... Um, just to worship you and to, and, to, and to serve you with thankfulness. Lord, I pray you would turn our focus to eternity. You would turn our focus to remembering your return and thinking about that and longing for it. So, Lord, use this time to grow our faith, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
the dead. He now reigns victorious. His kingdom knows no end. Through his resurrection, death has lost its hold. I know on that final day, I'll rise as Jesus rose. Oh, you. 
Father, we confess we need grace to be like what we just sung. We confess so often we live for the here and now. And we forget eternity. We barely pray about it. We barely read about it. We barely think about it. And we certainly don't order our lives according to it. So would you convict us of those specific ways in each of our lives Whatever the past week we've been living for the here and now. We've forgotten that we are aliens and strangers. That we've forgotten that this is not our home. So would you anchor us in the truth of your word this week? That, Lord, this is, we are sojourners in this life. And I pray that would orient everything of what we live for and how we spend our time and how we spend our money. That we would live with the end in view for that glorious day when we see you face to face. And so, Lord, we need your grace to do that. Lord, as we think about these commands we've been reading about this morning, Lord, to have joy in our hearts, Lord, we cannot manufacture that. Lord, to have an eternal perspective, we cannot manufacture that. We, God, we are so dependent on you. So we crowd as your people today. Pour out your abundant, transforming grace in our life this week. That we find our affections turning to you. We find our thoughts turning to eternity. We find joy in our heart that can only come from something you put there. So do that in us this week, Lord, that we might live lives that bring you glory and that we find the joy in that. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, Gateway family. Have a great week ahead.